This is episode 66, Straight Up Chat About Men's Health. My guest is John Parata. Have you ever said something to someone that you regret? Have you ever said something to somebody and then later on you think, I don't think I came across quite the way I intended? Well, that's an example of you being a little bit self-aware. That's an example of you reflecting on an action or a situation. We do it all the time. Constantly, we're reflecting and looking back at a scenario and wondering if we handled it right. But do we actually change the behavior? When you realized you've maybe said or done something that is a repetitive negative behavior, how often do we actually consciously change that behavior and improve it? Well, self-awareness is the first pillar of emotional intelligence, and John Parata, my guest today, and I are going to break down what self-awareness is and how to start actually becoming more self-aware. I've been on a bit of a personal development journey over the last 10, 15 years, and in that time, the self-awareness, self-reflection part of that journey has propelled me much faster and much further in the improvement of my communication, my relationships, my business, and my overall fulfillment in life because self-awareness, self-reflection helps you just understand who you are at a core level. And I think that's so important because if you understand more about who you are and how you are perceived in the world and how you come across to people, you can tweak and improve and review and change to ensure that you're serving people the best way, you're helping people the best way, and you're most importantly helping yourself in the best way possible. John Perotta lives in Adelaide, Australia. He spent much of his adulthood living and working overseas. He's an entrepreneur. He has qualifications in psychological science. And after graduating in 2015, he began to work as a counsellor for a not-for-profit, non-government organisation, working mainly with young people between ages of 8 to 18 in the northern areas of Adelaide. For those who don't know Adelaide, the northern regions, some of those northern suburbs, can be known as the areas that house the underprivileged. So he works with mostly young people dealing with trauma, extreme levels of anxiety, abuse and neglect. He's doing great work with these young people in helping them understand themselves a bit more and be more self-reflective. So let's jump into that interview with John, get to know him a little bit and learn how to be more self-aware. How do you do what you love and how do you love what you do? How do I do what I love? I try to continuously enjoy what I do by looking for the grateful parts of what it is that I do. Any career, any vocation, anything that we do on a regular basis in order for that thing that we do to give us some sort of meaning, fulfillment, um, gratitude, we have to consciously, I believe, look for, invest in, question the good parts about that thing that we do, regardless of whether it's a hobby, whether it's work or a vacation, whether it's people that we invest time into, as well as ourselves. What is it about that thing or the relationship with that thing what is it about that that we enjoy, that we are grateful for? So as an example, I get a real kick out of my counselling when I witness my clients have that light bulb moment, that moment where they say, aha, and you see facial expressions change as a result of giving them places that they can step into and make their own connections to the realization that, oh, wow, this is why I do a thing. 
and what you've done as a as a therapist, regardless of your level of practice, is you simply allowed them to walk into a space where they can make the realization for themselves. You can see that movement as a therapist. You can see them walk that path, but you can't make them step through. It's what most therapists will say, but it's really rewarding to watch them take that journey consciously and watch their, what we call their nonverbal, nonverbal language, facial expressions, arm movements, body language, position changes in their body as they make those realizations. So that's, that's really what works. So those, those are the bits that I look for as a therapist that I am extremely grateful for when they happen. So that's how I keep enjoying what I do. It keeps your buckets full, your own energy buckets. Keeps my buckets full. The other thing that I like to do to answer the flip side of that question, I think you asked, uh, how do you enjoy what you do and how do you do what you enjoy? I think the other side to that question is I do lots of things that I believe that I'm good at. I'm not necessarily the best. I don't profess to be, but I believe that I'm good at in that I'm able to add value to others with what I do. So I do like to have a variety of things that I do that give my life balance. I'm interested in hearing a bit about life before counselling, life before this interview. So did you grow up in Adelaide? I'm an Adelaide boy. For those of you who don't know uh, John and I personally, we are actually pretty much neighbours. You live in Adelaide, I live in Adelaide, and we met, I don't know, when did we meet John? Probably five years ago, four years ago? Approximately five years ago, yes. John was teaching in a dance school, and I, I, and I look fondly back at that dance school. There's been two times in my life when I've had this realisation that who I am as a man is is, is okay, you know, because a lot of guys you know, feel that they have to sit behind their masculinity and, um, and their manliness. But when I met you, you gave me a massive bear hug. It's happened before with another <laughs> good friend of mine. And I just felt instant love. And that uh, that was my first encounter pretty much of you, John Protter. <laughs> and, uh, and the bromance has developed ever since. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> I want to thank you uh, for that. But you, yeah, you come from an Italian family background, is that right? I do. What was life growing up in an Italian family? I find that very hard to describe now because I am such a different person now than what I was back then. I have an extremely different set of core values that I've taken a lifetime to develop and that I am now extremely comfortable with. So there's much of what I don't agree with that I grew up with initially. And that's not to say that I don't love my family dearly, but we have very different views on things. And myself and my family get into heated arguments at times now because of those um, different perspectives. And I, and I like that. I like that clashing of core values. I think it makes for great conversation. But as a young person uh, growing up in an Italian family, uh, very rowdy, uh, very set ways of doing things. The engagement was about being manual, connecting through being physical, connecting through working with your hands. That's very much how the connection was. But at the same time, it was a very, very loud environment. So unless you 
were willing to shout your piece, you didn't always get heard. That has its positives and its, and its, and its negatives. Negative, you feel that you've always got to shout as part of the conversational piece. You don't, you learn that later. As a positive, it's a really good skill to draw back on when, when you're in a situation where you do need to raise your voice to get a point across. I don't necessarily like to do that, but there are times when it, the purpose itself is served. So that was what, for me, that's what it was like growing up in, an Italian, in that sort of Italian household. I was the youngest of four boys. I was mummy's little boy. And I would run to her quite often to be saved from my brother's big masculinity, as it were, because they were big boys, you know, they were quite rough and ready and ready to take on. And I was quite small and quite lean and very nothing, you know, nothing like them. So over time, I had to look to develop my own personality. But that's what it was like growing up in an Italian household. It's interesting that you talk about that in terms of core value conflict and through a journey of self-awareness, which is the topic really of this today's conversation, that you've come to realize that your core values may not be aligned with your families or, or what they were back then. So was there a pivotal point where you sort of started making that realization or was there an event or was it more of a transition? It was all of the above. We were a very tactile family. So we showed love through stuff that we did for each other. We showed love through defending one another standing up for one another and we showed love through touch so hugs kisses you showed respect to extended family through giving aunties and uncles and grandparents hugs and kisses that's how you showed love but you didn't always say that you loved the person it was almost implied through the tactile nature of the extended family that love was implied however what i craved personally was communicating that love. And I didn't realize that until I had to look back reflectively on my life and thought, where was I different? And one thing that I noticed is that as I grew up, I liked, the first thing was I actually liked different things that my brothers liked. So they liked music and they liked going out and partying and with the boys. And I didn't like that. I preferred she preferred spending time with, with women in the company of females and having that sort of deep and meaningful conversation that they never did. They liked rock music. I liked like dance music. So that was the first sort of inclination that I liked different things to them. And then um, I got into relationships where the values of the relationship were different to the values of the relationships that my family believed were appropriate. So there was, a, there was a real budding of, of values there. And the third thing was having a desire to travel and spend time away. There was an intuitive calling for me to spend time away from my family to what some people will say to go out and find oneself, to remove yourself from one's beginnings to find one's own values and moral compass. Which not everyone gets the chance to do. No, they don't. This is very true. And that was the real catalyst for me setting myself on my own journey of self-awareness was being able to make decisions away from my family where I couldn't use them as that crutch, as a sounding board. I had to make a lot of decisions on my own because I was, I was out on my own. And that's when I started to understand, well, what is it that, that I actually feel is the right path for me as opposed to 
following a path, a very strong path, and understand that ethnic families, in fact, a lot of migrant families have very strong ideals when it comes to that feeling of togetherness, because that's how they survive in a new land. They survive by recruiting similar forces. They survive by creating strength in numbers. And they survive by creating their own groups or subcultures within the culture. And that's how they maintain their strength and their ability to move forward. So my parents came from that. My parents really came from that. And so when I looked to move away, it was a bit of a, there, there were some people that understood why. And there were some people that felt that when I went, I was never going to return or come back the same person. And, and as it turned out, I didn't. Of course. Change is change, isn't it? Change is change. You know, and, and change, always any sort of change, brings about an initial difficulty in behaviour and personal understanding. And change brings about a lot of, for lack of a better way of putting it, fighting with one's surroundings and one's changes. But through that change, you can't help but come out a different person. Through the change in your environment, you actually come out becoming a different person and you come out becoming a much more self-aware person because you've had to make decisions along the way to deal with that change. And the word self-awareness, it's not quite cliched yet, I don't think. <laughs> Things like uh, you know, vulnerability is definitely cliched these days and a number of other words, but they all have really deep impact and real meaning behind them, but perhaps the, the meaning's been a bit uh, diluted of late. But with the words self-awareness, can you maybe explain what is self-awareness in its truest form? So there's a dictionary meaning for, for self-awareness. Okay, pick up any Webster's or an Oxford and you'll get something like this, conscious knowledge of one's own character and feelings. There's also a psychological discussion and meaning. And I picked one out from a psychologist called Daniel Goleman from the 40s. And he says, knowing one's internal states, preference, resources, and intuitions. And really simply put, it's understanding what makes you tick. So what does it really mean? So when you say you know, it's what makes us tick, so how do you become more self-aware? How does that start? What do we do? Okay, becoming self-aware, what does it mean? Well, what it means for me to be self-aware is to understand triggers to different behaviors and thoughts and actions. So understanding that when I am in a particular situation or I find myself in a particular type of discussion, there are certain ways that I will act and react. And there are certain things that I will say, even down to there is a certain format that I will use, or there's a certain way that I will say certain things given the situation. And understanding that I'm aware that this is going to happen when it happens, and I know what triggers those responses and that behavior. Right, I see. So it might be that there's a repeated behavior that comes up often, say, I don't know, like in a relationship where the subject of money comes up, for example. And if I respond in this, a very similar way, I know I used to respond in a very similar way when with an, an older partner of mine, it would always end up arguing because one or both of us had certain mindsets around money and we'd behave in the same way every time and they, they would never resolve the issue. Is that what you mean? Yes. But I never knew. I never knew I was doing it at the time. No, we don't because, because we don't take the time to reflect on why we're doing it. It becomes part of our everyday behavior. 
And because it becomes part of our everyday behavior, we don't, we don't look back to reflect on how we're responding. And as such, we don't become aware of what's triggering that response. We simply behave in a way that we are comfortable with. So chances are when you were behaving in that way with regards to money, you were comfortable behaving that way because chances are you'd seen that it was quite possible that you'd seen other people behaving in that way. Now, again, in the beauty of hindsight and reflection, I can see that it was through my conditioning as a child or how I was brought up was there was always a bit of a fear of money in my upbringing. You'll lose your money if you make money. If you, or if you trust people with your money, you'll lose it. Uh, that was that was the narrative, which now you know I've definitely learned is is not always right. But it was the truth for the whoever was teaching me that, whether it was subconsciously or not. Uh, yeah, so hindsight, I, I can see that now. You're listening to Straight Up Chats with the Man Bits Podcast. need to know are you ready for the middle bits i'm ready for the middle bits what's your number one tip for a fulfilled life be reflective write stuff down write stuff down learn i get somewhat passionate when someone says to me you know you learn something new every day so then my question is and, and it's quite often a throwaway response so then my, my response is so what did you learn today tell me what you learned what'd you learn with me, I look to be reflect, reflective in everything that I do, whether it's counselling, whether it's me teaching dance, whether it's me running my telecommunications business. I look to be reflective uh, and understand myself better. And by doing so, I can improve how I operate within those, three, within those contexts. If there was something you've learned along the way that isn't taught in school, what lesson do you think you've learned? That is a really good question, and I am saying that because I am stalling for time. <laughs> Stall away. If there's a bit of space, I'll just edit it. I would say see a therapist. See a therapist? See a therapist. So here's my idea about that. We see a GP once every six months, so to speak, to do a body checkup. We're told to go and see a dentist once every six months. We're told to go and see a GP to do a, to do a physical, to see where we're tracking. Why don't we do that from a mental health perspective? Why don't we see where we're tracking cognitively, mentally? And that's quite possibly the biggest thing that I ever did that changed my life. There were certain behaviors that I was, and this is when I came back. So I spent 10 years living, living abroad between 95 and 2005. I came back to Australia after a failed marriage and I began another relationship. And very early on, I noticed that I was eliciting very, very similar behaviors. And I knew I wasn't a bad person, but I felt intuitively and somewhat consciously actually at this point that I was eliciting similar behavior as I did in previous relationships. And I wanted to know why. I needed to understand why. And the only reason why that happened was because I made a conscious decision to see a psychologist. And I, that wasn't something that I could do with family members because there'd be too much subjective language. So I needed to talk to somebody who was not emotionally involved in my life to get a better understanding of why I was doing such things and what I could do to stop them and what I could do to be aware that I was doing those things. So my number one tip would be to see a therapist, a counsellor, a psychologist to see where you're tracking. I think about the analogy about, say, a car. If you go and get your car serviced, you'll get it done six months to a year. 
service and that's a vessel that helps you get along in life this body that we have a physical and mental uh, emotional and spiritual body is a vessel and whether you know you're, you're spiritual or not or whatever your your thing is mentally getting that checked serviced even uh, from time to time is going to help isn't it i mean it, I, can't, I find it crazy that we don't really think about it and it's even it's even a stigma to go and get a mental checkup if you say to someone i've been to see a psychologist like oh god what's wrong but it doesn't really have to be that way it's it's really interesting and i noticed that in my so for example i noticed that in my parents language now i'll call them up and say hey how you doing you know i'll call up and say hey john what's wrong and i've just called up to say hi or are you home or i'll ask hey dad have you got a, have you got a couple of minutes why what's wrong and that's his language. He's, he's, he's waiting. He's so invested. He's waiting for that experience to happen. The other tip that I will say to that, if you find yourself in a mental health state where you believe you do need to see someone, the second tip that I would say, if you do decide, if you're courageous enough to make that decision, is actually when things get better, keep going. Because what a lot of people do when they make the decision to see a mental health professional is... They get to a point where they get back to an even keel, so to speak, or they've solved or they've put a Band-Aid on the issue that they were facing and they've had a chance to talk to someone. So, oh, I'm better now. I don't, have to see, I don't have to see that person anymore. Now, here's the crux of it. At that point, that's when you really need to keep going because it's only when you're feeling strong enough mentally do you have the mental strength to actually start being self-aware of what it is that makes you tick. And when you become self-aware, you actually become face-to-face -face with those parts of your psyche that you actually don't like. And it's only when you face those dark parts of your psyche, of your mental health or your mental experience, that you can face them and deal with them because they're the parts that actually trigger your behavior and your responses. But you really want to do that when you're in a good space, in a positive mental health space, not in a, not in a, say, on a downward or a negative mental health space. So when you get to a point where you're starting to feel good about yourself because you've seen a site for five or six visits, that's when you want to start. That's when you want to keep going because then you're mentally equipped to work through those parts of your mental psyche that you're not necessarily comfortable with. If there was one word you could select to set your intention for the coming year, what word would you choose? Purposeful. Do something on purpose. Be on purpose, regardless of what it is. Be on purpose. What is your purpose to be here? What is your purpose to be in this relationship? What is your purpose to start this business? What is your purpose to be in this employment? What is your purpose to make this decision? I find that it can be difficult sometimes to have clarity on what purpose I have. Certainly in old relationships, when you come to that realization that it's not working, perhaps you think, well, why did we even get into this in the first place? What's the purpose? Here's what's interesting about that. If you'd asked me that question again, I would say grateful. <laughs> so, 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 one, so one of the things that I've made, and I don't always do it, but one of the things that I do every morning on my drive to work is I pick three things that I'm grateful for. And what that also does is that helps me be purposeful. Well, if I'm grateful for these things, I better be purposeful in maintaining those things. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting you should say grateful because my next question is, what are you grateful for today? <laughs> so I'm grateful for my car. I'm grateful for my parents. And I'm grateful for my relationship with my partner, Rachel. And tomorrow, and, and tomorrow it will be something different. So, and it, and it could be it could be just something completely benign, like I'm grateful for my sports bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't overthink it. 
don't overthink it. I'm grateful for my gym membership. You know, I'm grateful for the new pair of sneakers I bought. I'm grateful for the job that I do. Yeah, don't overthink things. All the things that we have in our life, uh, give it purpose, give give it meaning. So be grateful for those things. I think if anyone's listening to this podcast, be grateful because you're on the internet. You, you know, you're not in such poverty that you can't access the internet or you've got a phone that you can hold in your hand or you've got a fridge you can get milk out of. I mean, it seems a bit sort of wanky to say that, but it really is. When you look at it in the bigger picture, we can, we've got a lot we can be grateful for. Absolutely. Just because these items or what we do is part of our everyday life doesn't mean we shouldn't be grateful that they are in it. And one of the things that I've noticed is when I started to be grateful for things that I've achieved, the way I was living my life, I noticed that I was much more content and much more peaceful because I was actually, I could look around me and go, I've actually got a lot to be grateful for because there's a lot of stuff in my life. And here's the thing, if that stuff left me, I'd still be grateful because there'd be something else to be grateful for. Good answer. Thank you. I'd like to maybe dig a bit deeper into self-awareness because perhaps someone is listening who might be going, that self-awareness thing sounds like a whole lot of hard work. (laughs) I want to maybe establish what are some of the positive things about being more self-aware versus the negatives? Sure. Okay. Well, I'd like to, if I may, I'd like to start with some of the challenges that come with being self-aware, especially at the beginning. Because like I said before, any changes that we make to our environment will inevitably force us to go through difficult periods through that change. So if we look to put ourselves on a path of self-awareness, one of the things that I found when I first started on this journey to self-awareness was just being overwhelmed with new and indescribable emotional states. So for example, with mindfulness or meditation, we need to be aware that feelings of anger, frustration, and fear will will quite often present themselves. And we need to make sure that we choose the right type of mindfulness or meditation for the purpose. So as an overarching comment, when you start becoming self-aware, understand that there will be emotional floods that at that point in time, you will not have the skill set to work through. Know that. And you will feel overwhelmed emotionally and understand that that is, and that's okay. That is, that is normal. That is part of the process. Um, when we first start focusing on ourselves and what makes us tick and being reflective, there are going to be periods where we're unable to concentrate for long periods of time. We'll feel lightheaded. We'll feel that we're sort of floating through that period. Again, that's part of the process. And I think thirdly, just because you've started the process to self-awareness, doesn't mean you're going to achieve this, this, this type of enlightenment. There's going to be a lot of frustration that oh, I haven't achieved it. Well, figure out what it is you're looking to get from self-awareness, and that'll give you an idea of what it is that you're trying to, trying to achieve. It's probably not going to be a day where suddenly you have this massive light bulb moment of things just going, oh, I get it now, I'm self-aware. I mean, it's certainly nice I think both of us, perhaps even naively, think we're we're self-aware. I'm sure there's a lot more, uh, a lot deeper we could go out with our own journeys. I mean, no doubt. 
but uh, it is really refreshing to know that I am able to self-reflect where a lot of people can't and and it, it's frustrating when you see people who are further along on that journey let's say you feel like you want to be there where they are and that's that don't worry about them you know don't worry about them and that's a big thing don't look to compare yourself to others in the journey what you can do what you can do is be informed by people along the journey and look to gain from their experience so that's one of the positives that's one of the positives about being self-aware there are quite often there will be plenty of people around you that you can draw from like us like us well we'd like to think so <laughs> we say jokingly so look to draw from people that are already where you want to be because there's knowledge there it's a, it, I, I love the quote if you're the smartest person in the room, find another room. So other positives, you know, increases in your emotional intelligence, increases in your EQ. With self-awareness, we're able to monitor our emotions and thoughts in a variety of situations and contexts. And we're able to do that with greater personal inner strength. If somebody listening hasn't read Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goldman, it's five pillars of emotional intelligence. So that's self-awareness, self-regulation, social skills, empathy, and motivation or relationships. So what else on the positives? Greater compassion to others and therefore self. Okay. And especially with that, you're able to experience life with greater depth. That's good. I like that. I like that. Especially when, when anger comes up, just to have a, a bit of compassion when you feel like blaming someone. Yep. Yeah. And what that does is it leads to stronger connectivity to others and the world around us and therefore stronger relationships with others. And if we're so inclined, stronger relationships with ourselves. That's probably the goal. That's probably what the real core of it is, because once you've got that, then the rest of it kind of falls into place. Absolutely. If we can. T so let's say, for example, if we take this from a business perspective, if we have stronger connections to our customers or to our target audience, we're able to provide greater value for them. We become more valuable to them, which means they'll stay our customers, our clients. So there's even a, an argument for better business practice through becoming self-aware. I'd like to know where, because we haven't really talked on this much, but I'd like to know where dance fits in this for you. So. You know, both of us, we both dance salsa. Haven't really mentioned it. Actually, we both just dance a few things. You're you're well into your ballroom now as, as well, and, and other forms of dance. So, where does where does dance fit in? How has dancing helped you with this journey of self awareness as well? Yeah, good question. The thing about dance is, and specifically partner dancing, which is what we do. Yeah, not just hip hop on the street. Not just hip hop on the street. Not just not just a two step at a club with hands in the air. It would be a travesty if i was to go and hip hop on the street just it would be terrible 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 but partner <laughs> dancing that's okay yeah yeah um okay sorry go on i think what dancing gives us is the ability to make connections with people you and i as people who are decent at dancing or dancing we both lead and follow so we can actually dance with other males as well as such, we need to make connections with those people. Being self-aware of what I'm doing means I have a greater sense of self-awareness of what you're doing, which means I can be a better partner to you in that moment of dancing. So there's, there's a real sense that there's even a deeper sense of connection 
when you are self-aware when it comes to partner dancing. And that's how it makes that experience even greater and deeper. And this is, I guess, a metaphor for compassion, really. Learning the ladies, well, both John and I are teachers, and learning the female steps of particular styles, say salsa, was fundamental to me being better at what I do at, in, as a male lead. And just because I really understood what it felt like to step through as a follower, and that, and that helped me have more respect for for what I'm doing um, when I'm leading somebody. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's, it's made a huge difference. And that in itself is a great metaphor for why empathy is important. You mentioned dancing with a man. Like, like as, a, as a male teacher or as a male lead, dancing with another guy as a follower is an interesting experience. And there's only a few men who I've met who can do it. Uh, it, it absolutely conflicts with our perception of masculinity. I've uh, been teaching, or just recently been teaching a couple, Pascal, and as part of that, I you know, hit the guy up and said, right, I need you to lead me now for this part. And that was a challenge for him. And he stepped up, he, he showed up and did it, he, he led me. But he was he's a beginner and he'd never done it before. You know, I don't think he'd ever been that close to a man in that respect, in physically. And I think it was a real challenge for him, but, uh, he, you know, he did it. And it actually really helped him sort of understand what, how he was leading his partner. And uh, so it was, it, was, it was a little bit of a nice moment to see that, despite, despite it being a bit awkward. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. I think we've unpacked self-awareness pretty well. Is there anything else you could add to give a bit more clarity on what it is, how someone could get started with getting to know themselves a bit? One of the places that we can start is, number one, keep a journal. Just keep a journal. Keep, keep, something, keep something that you can be reflective on, that you can go back to. One of the best ways that we can remove the triggers to our behaviour that we would say maybe cause negative behaviour, as an example, is to remove those, those thoughts and feelings from our conscious mind before we pack them away somewhere because we've, you know, we've slept on them. Be aware by getting rid of those thoughts in a hard copy down on paper. There's a real good research around remembering things by writing them down physically. There's a physical connection with the brain by writing those down. I also look at it as the analogy of moving data from your computer to an external hard drive. That data, that heavy data slows your computer down when you're going searching for other stuff. If you remove it, your computer runs without glitches. You can get to stuff faster. Get in the practice of keeping a journal. Okay, number one. Number two, practice being a good listener. I'm sorry, what? It takes time. You don't, you practice being a good listener. <laughs> I was just joking. I fell for it. Practice. <laughs> And I think what that shows is that I'm really in the moment right now. I completely missed the joke because I'm so... You're in the zone, man. I'm so in the moment. Um, practice being a good listener. We didn't become decent dancers or good dancers by not practicing. You don't just wake up one day and become a good listener. It takes time. It's like what you said before. It's like you don't just become self-aware. It's not just a stroke of genius. It comes over time. And I think the other thing you can do, like I said at the beginning, is gain different perspectives. And one of the best ways you can do that is using a therapist. Use a therapist because they will give you that objectivity that friends or family won't necessarily give you because they're not tied to you emotionally or they don't have a history with you. 
might just add one more that literally just came to me. I was wondering if, purely from my own experience, and it might not work for everyone, but I asked a couple of close friends for feedback. Sort of, you know, hey, when I speak to you about this, that, and the other, do I have sort of a condescending tone? Or, you know, because I had this inkling that I was coming across a bit harsh. And uh, so I asked some personal friends, when I come across to you or in a, on a subject or whatever it was, how does it sound? And people gave me some really honest feedback about my tone. And yeah, and I realized in my work, even though I was feeling like I was being empathetic or giving information in a nice way, I was coming across very sharp. And it's because I'm a bit of a left brainer. I like to get to the point on things. And so if you're working with someone who has more of a right brain approach, an emotional based approach, that for them felt quite harsh. And uh, that was massive learning for me to get feedback from people who know me. I bet it was. I bet it was. I still seek it. My wife lets me know all the time. Good. That's a, that's a good thing. And it sounds like you understand that's not an attack on your behavior. That's just letting you know what's happening at this point in time. And that's an opportunity for you to learn and grow. Great point. Actually, very confronting at first. But yeah, like you said, it, when you don't take it's not personal. It's, it's for the better good. It really is. But because the conversation and the comments are directed at us, we take it personally because quite often we're the only other person in the room. It's not personal. It's an opportunity for us to learn. It's just been a joy to have a chat with you and unpack this. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for sharing your insights and wisdom, John. Always a pleasure. My pleasure, buddy. My pleasure. It's, it's actually been a really good chat. I've really, really enjoyed myself and I'd be happy to have a chat just off it anytime, mate. Just anytime. Yeah, same, same. I could talk to you for hours. Maybe we can do another one one day. I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you, John. I love that man. Guys, if you want to check out the show notes, go to themanbits.com forward slash 66. That's the number of the episode. That's where the show notes are. But also don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook at The Man Bits, Twitter at The Man Bits, and Instagram at The Man Bits Podcast. It's really easy to find us. And if you're holding your phone in your hand or if it's in your pocket, grab it out right now and just hit subscribe because that makes a massive difference and you'll get notified when the next episodes are available. Now, to those of you who have listened all the way to the end, thank you. We have a little bit of an announcement to make very soon. And if you haven't already joined our mailing list, please do because I'm going to keep the announcements to our Patreon community and to our mailing list only. There's some big, awesome changes coming up with the podcast early next year it's a new chapter of my life pascal and i have a daughter due in december and we have episode 100 of the podcast coming up in late january so i feel like it's a really good opportunity to introduce some amazing changes to the show so if you haven't already jump onto my website themanbits.com and fill out the form there to join our mailing list really easy just needs your name and email pop it in there and I'll keep you up to date with what's going on and what's changing. It's all really, really cool and I'm so excited about bringing it to you. Stay tuned and I'll see you next week for episode 68 with Ollie Matthews. He's the business partner of Emil Hodzovic who was on just a few weeks ago. Much love, much appreciation. Have a great week.